Superpowers start with being open to this moment. If you do, then you can own it. Besides, it'll be gone before you know it, so don't blow it. You owe it to this second of eternity to show up, embrace the possibilities, and slow up. Take a breath, look around, see the sights, hear the sounds, feel the ground, notice how the gravity weighs you down. You could be anywhere, and yet you're here. When you embrace it as your own, you begin to overcome your fears. And real courage is staring in the mirror. It's deciding what you want to do, then making it appear. It's creating out of thin air. You must be doing something right if you get scared. Otherwise, you wouldn't care. It's a process to get from here to there. You're on the journey and you're learning. But building muscle means you're going to feel some burning. So don't deny it. Simplify it. Try it. See if it can work for you. Shift perspective to get a different view. And don't forget, you've got to laugh at the truth because sometimes a sense of humor is the only thing that pulls us through. It's medicine when you can let it in. An attitude of gratitude will bubble up from within. So even when the storm clouds block the blue from your sky, you'll remember that the sun is waiting for you on the other side. And having fun is something we must decide from the lows to the highs. It's all a part of the ride. I can throw my hands up or hold on for dear life, but I'd rather live once and have to go to hell twice. Compassion is my passion. Empathy is my gift, but my growth is incremental as my consciousness shifts. So I create from the abyss, turning pain into gold. I'm an alchemist, an optimist, and an authentic soul. I believe that life is good, even when it hurts to see. I believe in superpowers, and I believe in you and me. I believe in superheroes, but I don't look for them above because they exist inside us all. And we say the day we love. That is a piece called Superpowers from In Q, from his book, Inquire Within. And oof, got my little spoken word poet slam on then. And the piece that Christine thought and felt really encapsulated many threads of our conversation. Christine is an executive coach, an offsite wizard, an alchemist, and works with leadership teams around the world. She's worked with the with the team at Slack, at WeWork, at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, at the Grameen Bank. She's an advisor to the Kaufman Fellows and serves on the leadership council of the Women Business Collaborative and is part of the global shaper movement. She's someone that Every time I talk to, I feel incredibly full and enlivened around and with and, and afterwards. And so uh, in this conversation, we definitely experience that and we definitely experience many pauses. Whether you're leading an organization, a team or, or not, we're all leading in many ways in our lives, our loves and our work. And maybe it's the claiming of our role as stewards and leaders that is in many ways our, our step into being of service with integrity honoring the impact that our very being in the world has on our concentric circles of relationship. So Christine and I really dive into the practice and philosophy of regenerative leadership as we both feel it and have experienced it. And as that philosophy continues to evolve, we both have a vision for a world where the words love, soul, money, profit, and business are spoken often in the same sentence in leadership circles. And so we explore the power of listening as a kind of midwifery the courage to abandon outcomes, humility in leading amidst the unknown, and familiarizing ourselves with play again as a way of courting the muse and building a relationship with disorder and the unknowing. So this one's juicy if you're curious about regenerative leadership and how to bring or how to open up spaces for the unknown, for the invisible aspects and in the way that we hold space for each other in, in building and in creating uh, impact in the world. And this one has many hidden nuggets and moments of pregnant pause or pregnant silence. So here's to leadership, love, and living in ways that hold more of the whole. Enjoy. Grab a tea, take a breath, notice the inhale, the exhale, and the space between. A moment in between moments. Here you are. You're listening to Spaces Between with your friend and host, Al Jeffrey. An open exploration into restoring connection in the 21st century in our personal lives, our relations, and our communities. What does it mean to live in relationship to the wholeness of who we are together? I'm not one for ads and am one for creating something beautiful with others, in this case, you. So if you enjoy our time together, I do invite you to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, rate and leave a review for the show. 
And if you're feeling super generous and fueled and filled up by our conversations, you might even consider donating or soon joining my Patreon membership. Just visit www.spacesbetweenpodcast.com where you'll also find show notes and other useful links and resources following these conversations. So this is it. Let's dive in. All right, Christine, thanks for taking time out of what sounds like a spacious day for a conversation. <laughs> a pleasure. I'm so happy to be here talking to you, Al. As yeah. I've told you, I'm, I just feel so inspired by the way that you say all of the words. It's <laughs> your walking poetry, your walking ceremony, and I love it. I'm happy uh, to be here. Thank you. And yeah, I remember our uh, first conversation felt like such a, I mean, for me, this is morning time. Our last conversation was morning time as well. And it felt like I don't eat until 1 p.m. usually. Uh, and our conversation just really topped me up. Like, who needs breakfast when you have Christine? Um, <laughs> um, I'm doing that as such a compliment. I feel the same way. For some reason, my kids don't, um, don't pick up on that. But <laughs> get there. they need their cereal. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So it'd be lovely to start by uh, just having you paint a picture of where you are now. And then also more broadly, just to situate that conversation, where you're sensing and feeling we are now as a collective in this very unique time, kind of twin pandemics. Yeah, radical social inequalities kind of bubbling to the surface amidst COVID, the big C word. So yeah, I'd love to hear you just paint a picture of firstly for yourself. Yeah. And then- okay. For myself, it has been a season of very uh, extreme threshold crossing, one after the next, after the next, starting about when COVID happened. Like my, my own transmutation, we'll say, has been in lockstep with not only COVID, but then also the social justice movements happening everywhere. And I think the picture that I would paint of, of me is, is one of, I picture myself in this place, we'll call it a place. <laughs> it's not a place that exists on earth. And it's like, I can see infinite fiery thresholds. Mm. And for the first time in my life, I, that doesn't feel daunting. I think that I spent a lot of my energy the first, you know, 30, 30 something years of my life avoiding thresholds because I, I assumed it would be painful to cross and it is. However, the potential pain is so far outweighed by the real, uh, how would I even put the, it's, it's like a feeling I can't describe. It's, it's the positive opposite of everything that I would have assumed pain is. Mm-hmm. And so I think after doing that so many times over the last four or five, six months, I'm, I'm in this place where I have a very different relationship with thresholds. So the picture of me is in the infinite space with the fiery thresholds from me into infinity. And I'm pumped about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Practicals. The picture of me that I would also paint is um, I'm a mother of two. I'm a partner. I'm always trying to learn how to be a a more patient and present partner and mother. And I'm also an entrepreneur kind of dipping my feet in this realm of uh, what does it look like if I truly embraced infinite possibility and didn't have a regard for uh, linear time in what I'm building and how I'm building it and how quickly I'm doing so. With regards to the archetype of the earth right now, Uh (laughs) the planet, the collective, it feels to me like there's just, there have been a series of light switches flipped on and it's, it's that moment of everyone kind of being shocked and, and, and shielding their, their eyes and, and that very uh, abrasive confronting feeling of illumination. But I think that as a collective, I sense that this illumination is something that we're leaning into and we are getting comfortable and starting to understand in new ways the, the beauty and the hardship of 
having the lights turned on within mm-hmm. ourselves and around us. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And I love the, uh, before we clicked record the, the metaphor or the story, the fable of the agony of the leaves, um, yeah. within tea philosophy and yeah, I absolutely love tea, tea and ceremony and philosophy. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the agony of the leaves as you did for me earlier. Yes, of course. Yes. I love that we connected, that we both have our tea vessels and we do the appropriate things with the sacred, the pouring and the acknowledgement. Yeah. And because of that shared acknowledgement, um, I saw, I shared that I had Thai red tea this morning and, um, my, I have a friend that does tea ceremonies and she's the one that taught me about this. And we were, we were drinking tea and she, she said, the part of the meditation is to witness the agony of the leaf. And I said, the agony. And she goes, yes, the agony. And I, and I, and I was kind of across the room. From her. I was like, wait, wait, hmm. are you saying agony? <laughs> That's in yeah. like immense pain. Can you go in? And she, she said, yes, the agony. And so uh, what she shared with me is in tea practice to watch the hot water be pearled, be poured onto these tight, tightly wound balls of tea leaves as the hot water saturates them and they start to unfurl, that's called the agony of the leaves. And she was talking about the metaphor of it having to be hot water in order to allow these tea leaves to open and to share their medicine and to share their flavor. And it's, it's beautiful and it's expansive and it's agonizing. And it's also a metaphor for what it feels like for, I think, most human experiences of expanding and becoming it's not it's not necessarily a walk in the park you know there are pieces of agony with it uh and so yeah it's a it's a beautiful way to think about it especially the meditation yeah i love that it's so and your surprise in uh hearing the agony of the leaves uh, for me sums it up as well like the leaves feel so delicate and so precious and so soft and gentle and in a way it's cute like I look at the leaves and I was like, wow, you're so small, but so potent. And yeah, that even the leaves experience agony. And it's the, the agony that kind of opens up the delicate nature and essence of, of the leaf. Yeah, so that it can transform the water and, and we can in, enjoy the tea. Yes. Yeah. And, we, and don't, we don't pour cold water on things, you know? <laughs> no. Yeah, there's a reason. Gotta be boiling, gotta be scalding. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, uh, it speaks so strongly to, to alchemy, which I know a lot of your work and philosophy is, is centered around. And so I'd love to dive into that, but to, I suppose for those who aren't familiar with your story, uh, and I mean, the podcast isn't so much about, I mean, it's of course, story is, is incredibly important and a big part of the podcast, but it's not so much just about us sharing our stories of kind of how we got here, but I feel your story and in how you wove the, the pieces to your inquiry, the kind of worlds that converged w- around, whether it be shamanism, whether it be consciousness, spirituality, and business and leadership, worlds that often seem to be quite disparate. And many of us, like you and I, uh, are really playing the kind of, yeah, the, the world bridger, the weaver role of connecting worlds. And for me, a world where the words love and money and capital and business and spirituality can exist and be spoken in the same sentence at the boardroom table is a world that I feel really pulled and I know is possible. And so I'm curious how these worlds have converged for you in your journey up till now. Yes. Oh, I love this question. And I love the acknowledgement of all of these seemingly disparate words and ideas being used in the same sentence. And I think both of us have experienced the magic and power of using those words in the same experience that we're providing people, you know, like Mm. the same room, the same path. And um, it it became real for me that it was uh, not only, uh, what's the word? It was not only available to me to weave business and consciousness and soul and strategy and beingness and doingness, but it was beneficial, highly more beneficial to me and to my teams that I was working with in the big bad world of massively impactful global strategy consulting. 
I was working as SVP for a billionaire out of Spain and London. And what we discovered, it was almost by mistake, <laughs> honestly. Like we, me and the chief investment officer would show up at these tables and in these boardrooms where, you know, and it was that, it was that world of big money, big politics, big decisions, like lots of egos involved, um, lots of protectionism involved, you know, like everyone really feeling like everyone's out to get them because they're the ones with the, with the billions in their pocket. Mm. And we wanted to genuinely know who we were at these tables with. And so that's what we would open up with. And for we would just like disarm entire rooms of people because we would come in and just be like, you know, and everyone's all buttoned up in their suits and, and Robbie and I'd be like, Hey y'all. So why are you here? No, like, why are you here? Hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just kind of asking that question as many times as we had to, to help people understand that we wanted to know them as humans. And people were just so not expecting it. And, and, and the, the deals that we would broker and the people that we would bring together and the ideas that we would expand as a result of connecting first with our shared humanity and then talking strategy, it was just unprecedented what we were able to do and talk about weaving worlds. I mean, oh my gosh, like we wove some pretty incredible world. So I took that experience and applied it to starting my own company, which eventually became executive coaching. And then with this, I just recently, as you know, created this leadership program. It's a leadership mastermind starting next year called Alchemy of Chaos. And I created that imagining what would I want right now as a leader in on planet earth right now, (laughs) What, what would I, what skill would I most want to have in these times? And I thought, oh, if I could alchemize chaos, the chaos that exists everywhere and is abounding in greater and greater quantities, it felt like mm-hmm. um, that's, that's, what I, that's what I would have wanted. So that's what I created for, for others and for myself. I'm, I'm just as much on the ride. Yeah, great. And I love how it began just with a, a really humble human question of, and being willing to ask the question more than once rather than mm-hmm. like to not be completely satisfied with the first response, which yeah. we know in many cases is just that, yeah, good. How are you kind of response? So like, no, really, like I really care and it's okay to share. Why are you here? And it's a confronting kind of probing question. It is. It is. It, there, there's, there's an author named Nancy Klein. She wrote a book called Time to Think. And she says, in the presence of the question, the mind thinks again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, especially as you say, with the confronting question, something as simple as why are you here? Mm-hmm. There's so many levels, <laughs> so many dimensions. Yeah. Yeah. And the, or just questions, we could spend a whole episode talking about questions and the way they, we also spoke about, spoke about hidden corridor, corridors earlier. And the way that questions just unlock corridors to hidden worlds that without the right question or without the right question in the right space around the question, we may not have have accessed those kind of hidden rooms in our own psyche and worlds. So I love the power of questions and that that's where it kind of began with you, like being in the spaces that you, you were, but just shifting the questions that you ask. And I think that's something that anybody anywhere can really take away is that no matter where we are, we can have such influence and impact just with the questions that we're willing to ask and with the sincerity and kind of genuine, genuine desire to listen to whatever comes on the other side of the question, I suppose. Yes. Mm. I have a question for you about that. Do you, uh, this art of asking question, questions of the other, Mm. how do you think we get good at that. And is it the same or connected to asking questions of oneself? Mm. Yeah, I love, it's been a big topic of, uh, I suppose, reflection for me lately, reading a lot. And thanks, by the way, for asking me a question. It's great to have it flipped back. <laughs> I'm so, I love your brain, please. Yeah. <laughs> There's a beautiful book by Peter Wilberg. I think it was released in 2004 called therapist as listener. And it's about the whole philosophy of listening. That is what he calls moetic listening and listening as a kind of mid 
midwifing. So moesis or mo, uh, moetics in Greek means uh, to midwife. And that listening is actually an act of midwifing the unsaid potentialities of the other into the world. I just got chills mm. all over my body. Yes. Yeah. Keep it going. <laughs> and so to listen deeply is to connect with the tension in someone else's sharing in your own body and being. So understanding that we all swimming and living with very similar ex- existential realities. There are limitations, there is ultimate freedom, there is death, there is meaninglessness, there is incredible meaning, there is isolation and the inherent isolation in our psyches. No one will ever actually know us fully and deeply on some level. Um, and so there are these existential tensions that every single human being in a body on this earth experiences. And many of our, I suppose, challenges are just our own personal manifestations of those common existential realities. And so in some way, we can all connect with the tension or the energy, the emotion, the feeling tone of someone else's question or challenge. If we listen deep enough, we can feel that same tension or our version of that in our bodies. From that place, the question that we would want to ask ourselves will emerge. And so in that sense, we're connecting to the real essence of the tension beneath someone sharing. And then it becomes this kind of joint inquiry. It's like, I'm asking this because, wow, yeah, that hurts. I feel that the tension between, you know, wanting to do this because culture says, or wanting to do that because my heart and my history says that this is just where I'm meant to be going. That tension is, yeah, I feel that in my body. I'm curious where, you know, where you may have followed your heart before and it really felt enlivening and okay for the first time. And so feeling the tension in your body first uh, and being willing to enter the vulnerability of someone else's challenge makes it this collaborative inquiry. And so for me, that kind of philosophy of listening as midwifing is just so beautiful. Yes, that, Mm. uh, that, and that whole explanation is so beautiful, moetic listening. Wow. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I, I can feel the truth of that. And I've, I've got to read that I've got to read your book that you just said. So I mean, I'm going to write that down. Mm-hmm. And it, it also makes me to refer back to um, Nancy Klein. She has a similar philosophy and she, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she said something about how listening in this way is both, you are both the seed and the soil. You are mm. both the birther and the baby. You are both the ignition and the key. And it's like, it's, it it gives rise Mm. to something living in the realms of the unsaid. And, uh, and, and she, she, she's like, if we could all learn to listen like this, or even 50%, if 50% of the world could learn to listen like this, we would know world peace. Mm -hmm. She really, really, really believes that like all of the misunderstandings and conflict that happen, is just like a lack of listening and hearing. and. Yeah, it's and something else that you said that I, that made me think actually of the wonderful, beautiful human who connected us, mm-hmm. Thomas, when we were discussing space in Alchemy of Chaos. Something that he we we were talking about um, space as uh, this place where possibility could arise, but first you have to create the space. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he left this polo after we got off the session and, and I don't know if this was fueled by you or he connected some dots, but he was talking about the tension in the space between mm. of that's where all the life is. Like, if you think about like, even like the cells of a table, not the cells, you know what I'm saying? Molecules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Science. Okay, science. Um, but it's the vibration, it's the tension between them that that create whatever the form is, and mm-hmm. um, and it's where all of that motion is. It's in it's in the, the between mm-hmm. tension, the yeah. space, and the yeah. So yeah, so yeah, yeah. And it's the like that's really what life is, right? It's between the the masculine and the feminine, between the the sun and the ultimate light and the depths of the core of the earth and the darkness. It's like we are half, not halfway, but we are, we are the product of the alchemy of opposites. Yes. Opposites in quotation marks. But 
yeah, there's the another piece that I love about the kind of moetic or midwife listening as kind of midwifery is the idea of the pregnant silence and the pregnant silence being that mm. the silence is pregnant with possibility. And so the importance of holding space after someone sharing to really, yeah, feel the tension or the, just not, not even the tension, but just the energy of the feeling tone of what it is that they've shared in your own being yeah. before trying to say something witty or useful or like fixate on whatever they've said, feel it. And it takes, it's such a radical act to take silence or space or pause in conversation. But yes. yeah, I mean, every time I have, it's like David White, he always seems to find his way into, uh, <laughs> to these conversations, but to, to deepen the conversation, stop the conversation you're having. Hmm. Yes. And it's in that pause that all of a sudden it's like, now I really understand what we're talking about. This is my real question now. Yeah. Which I love. So we just went down a whole rabbit hole of questions, but I feel it's so, it's something so simple, seemingly. Seemingly. Mm -hmm. But so, so crucial in our leadership, whether it be in business or in lives, like the questions really open up these doorways of possibility. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and, it, and it brings to mind even like another set of these opposites of leadership, generative evolutionary leadership in the way that I see it is mm -hmm. the ability to not only ask the question, but to listen in this way to mm -hmm. so many different kinds of answers. Uh, I think that so many leaders limit themselves and limit the possibilities of their ventures because they either don't like asking questions or they already have an idea of where they want to get, even as they ask a question, uh -huh. you know? And, and so there's already kind of a preset path that might be 1% of, of possibility, but it autumn, it like immediately kind of shaves off every other possibility. Uh -huh. And I think it comes from a, from a place of this older paradigm of leadership is in order to be a leader, you have to know the answer. And in order for people to feel comfortable following you, you have to know where to go. Mm. And I think that we're entering a paradigm in which leaders of the next generation and of the, new, the next shifts in paradigm uh, will be those who can walk with trust, not only in themselves, but in the collective of whatever it is in the collective of whatever they're building or the collective of the, the greater collective and have confidence in not having to know the answer or having to know where the path leads and just focus on being on the path and being on the path and being guided by listening in this way and then continuing to ask questions that you genuinely don't know the answer to, but you're so excited to learn from those around you, uh -huh. you know, that just, that feels so good to me to uh -huh. think about that and to think about following people who lead like that. Yeah. Yeah. It just feels incredibly humble and human to acknowledge. Yeah. Actually, I don't know. And there is actually no way we could know where this is going to end up, but approaching, I suppose, leadership business, our lives in such a humble way where it's in kind of an, again, David White, to live as a question rather than to live as a statement, to live with your queer, your questions that are un, maybe unanswerable, at least in this, this time in your life, you don't have the answers, but to live through those questions and to welcome people into that inquiry just feels like such a, yeah, regenerative such a connected and such a resilient way of being in the world to, mm -hmm. to embed yourself in a team or yeah, in a, a family, a group of humans that are all seen to be in a very real and authentic way, feeling their way through similar questions just feels incredibly humble and like takes the weight off, off the leader. I mean, in my own journey of masculinity, there's the archetypes of, you know, the king, warrior, magician, lover, and the boyish or the unintegrated or immature king is seen as the hero. 
the one who wants to achieve great things and be seen to achieve great things for kind of the affirmation of self. Whereas the king is the one who wants to achieve great things for others and in service to the world and doesn't need to be seen for it because it's in service. But the shift or the kind of alchemy that has to occur between uh, being a hero and a king is to be seen as not knowing or failing as a king. And when one is humbled by being a failed hero, they are humbled and welcomed into a kind of a, a kinghood. And I see so many leaders, whether they are in male bodies or, or not, but in a kind of hero archetype still, a hero mentality in the way that, yeah, even as simple as in the way that they ask a, qu- a question in a very leading kind of way. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Leading questions. Uh no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, if there was ever a thing to insult the intelligence of everyone around you, ask a leading question. <laughs> yeah. And then correct them once they've answered. <laughs> Thanks yes. for asking. <laughs> yes, truly. Yeah. I love the way that you described all of those things. And it just shows how subtly the transformation can look between one archetype and the next. Um, mm. And and how it, it it's a departure from self well it's a i don't know would you say that it's it's like a it's a departure from aspects of self that Mm. look outward that are outward bound for reverberation and feedback and Mm -hmm. we can call it validation i guess but it's a deeper connection to the centeredness of true self true beingness yeah yeah and it's yeah i'd say it's yeah a departure from self or simply a an inclusion of the larger self, the whole, the, the system, um, whatever language you'd like to use, but it's a tether. The self is now tethered to like the, from egocentricity to ecocentricity, the self is now tethered to an ecology, a broader environment, um, a broader sense of self, which, uh, I have a friend, Ash Buchanan, who is currently writing a book, but it's developed the benefit mindset, which is kind of the next evolution of the growth mindset. We went from fixed mindset of rigidity and stagnation, and this is the way it is, and I can't do it, and that's just it, to growth mindset. And it's like, I can't do it yet, and there's more, and we can keep going, and it's just an iterative process. And he really recognized that the growth mindset, you know, we live in a growth economy, and the growth mindset is still very much based on a sense of um, egocentricity, like growth for growth's sake, growth for self's sake. What, What does an ecocentric growth mindset look like? Uh, and he called it the benefit mindset, which is when is growth actually in service of the whole and what might growth in service to the whole look like here? Does it actually mean exiting the venture? Does it actually mean putting pause on constantly trying to, to launch this venture? Like, do I need to continually have a growth mindset and burn myself out? Or if I am connected to a kind of wider ecology or philosophy, is there a sign that's showing up here that says actually now's not the time? And so the benefit mindset, yeah, I'd relate to that idea of, yeah, maybe not departure from the self, but an inclusion of a kind of larger sense of self, which is community and, and planet Earth. Yeah. Yes. And an abandonment of this idea that we should know mm-hmm. all things or that there are, that there's, that, that, that that should be the goal in order to garner more proof or validation for a certain move. You know, I've, I've really come to believe that to know is to not know. Mm-hmm. To not know is to know, you mm-hmm. know, like really getting comfortable in, to use our word again, the tension of mm-hmm. the not knowing, the, the abandonment of driving towards an outcome or even a result. And I know that that's a very weird thing to say, especially in the leadership space, but I think mm-hmm. it is the key to a truly scintillating conversation that can apply this interconnected communal, uh, larger self hive intelligence, <laughs> you know, like that can really only come in and serve the greater whole when, when there's not someone in the middle of that hive claiming that they know everything and driving towards their idea, you know, Uh because like 
think about. It's like, that's like one little thought. That's one little idea. And it doesn't take advantage of the entire, I'm, I'm picturing, you know, that scene in Avatar when all of the indigenous beings are in that um, circle around the tree yeah. and they're all moving at the same, in the in same harmony. way, and like all of their uh, beings are like, their, their, their things are connected to the tree and it's all lighting up at the same time and they like create life, you know? Yeah. yeah. They create, they, yeah. It, yeah. There's something here that I'm probably not saying super well. <laughs> no, it's I'm lovely. Stuck. Avatar is a beautiful, and that image of being in rhythm and harmony and synchrony and yeah, it's, I mean, for me, what does biomimicry teach us about leadership? And, uh, I'm curious, like these words, and I'm also just very aware that, and for me, I'm very philosophical and metaphorical and often waffle about a lot, even in leadership circles. I'm like, right, let's bring this back, not down. Let's bring this to a relatable level so that it's, it is a bridge. It's not a, an us and them. We're not talking about this is how things should be in leadership, but we're really inviting leaders in. I'm curious how you go about weaving these worlds and bridging these, like what kind of language do you use to allude to things like wholeness or to allude to things like, yeah, maybe a more ecocentric or systemic view of leadership? How do you welcome people in, in a, a really accessible way? That's a really good question. You know, I am not sure if the way that I talk about leadership is necessarily accessible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that I, I made a decision a few years ago to wave my cosmic freak flag high <laughs> and stop trying to walk this line between one paradigm of leadership and the other. I mean, I am, I'm a line walker. I am a world, like I do walk on that, on that line and weave, but I think that I have been using language that a a certain type of person who has a certain level of awareness of this greater truth of wholeness, even if they don't have the words for it, the way that I talk about what I do people who get in touch with me and people who want to work with me, it's because they get that, whether they realize that or not. And I, and I don't hear from or uh, work with the others. But I also think that there's, I don't know if this is coming out of my mouth the right way, but for instance, in the alchemy of chaos program Hmm. that I just ran, one of the prerequisites for entry into the program was are you a leader who's prepared to abandon your, your need for a result from this Mm. program? And people who look at buying into a program in order to get a certain result, they would have been like X, (laughs) like X out of that website. Who's this crazy person (laughs) Mm -hmm. that doesn't care about results. But I think once we're in the program, uh, the way that this is communicated, it's really experienced because I think Mm. that we can know things philosophically, but until we know them in our bodies, until we know them through our stories, until we know them through this confronting experience that happened, that shocked me and that I got a new result that I was never anticipating. That's where I see change happening and, and, and an evolution and a becoming. So part of the way that I do that is I, I always say the experience is the tool, the experience mm. is the tool and that, and, and I run it anonymously so that, so that people aren't hiding behind or not even hiding behind. Like a lot of times, like front and centering <laughs> their, their roles and their identities that are attached to ego. Like what happens when you get mm. a of 18 people who you know everyone's extremely high level and very successful and accomplished mm. but we do not speak of it we we run it anonymously to give people the freedom to present as who they are right now and through having that experience coupled with knowing what it's like to ask a question and try and focus on a result and then being met with the experience is the tool keep mm-hmm. sitting in that like there's no getting out of this. You're just going to sit right where you are and it's 
very uncomfortable. I get that. And the experience is the tool. The Mm. experience is the tool. Stay there. And just at the moment where they think that they're going to just like leave the program forever and, you know, say good riddance, breakthrough, you know? Yeah. And, and it's in a way that they never would have anticipated because they actually gave the unknowingness a space. So yeah, I, back to accessibility, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that just because I've made this very specific choice to speak in a certain way that a certain population is going to hear me and mm-hmm. a lot of populations just aren't. And I'm okay with that right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great that you made that choice because it is, I feel like I'm in the middle of making that choice actually. It is a lot of work to be a constant world bridger and to feel, yeah, whether it's kind of hospicing the old or midwifing the new, it kind of, for me, I've felt in trying to do both at the same time, it does require very different capacities in, say, a facilitator or a steward. You're either a, yeah, hospice or a midwife. Like, let's, let's choose. Uh, and I definitely <laughs> feel towards midwifery. It feels yeah. so exciting. And at the same time, though, I mean, in every choice we, we make, we're choosing against everything else. So there's fear in, in me about choosing that. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I find it an interesting question. And I really enjoy, I suppose, meeting others who have just made the, made the call. Uh, in the end, the impact of our work is going to ripple far and wide well beyond those who we work with and yeah and so there's a a big amount of trust in knowing that although we may not be working directly with with all people which is really quite impossible in some sense there is such a residual effect of our work that we just simply cannot measure yes absolutely have you ever heard that shell silverstein poem about the blue skin I don't think so. Oh, this is what, this is how and why I made this decision. So I, for the longest time was like really over, like, uh, over rotating towards validating my legitimacy with like what I did in the past and like all of my very legit, like mm-hmm. high level leadership positions and my very legit way that I speak about efficacy of strategy Mm. and application of understanding of all of those dimensions within the, within a business. And I, but I was spending a lot more time talking about that than what I really wanted to be talking about. And I ended up working with people who were very strategy minded and they, and it was, I was, it was like pulling teeth to get them (laughs) over over the line into the other world that it was like, so woven. I'm like, look, it's paradise over here. We're just like, no, well, and that makes sense because I engaged them on the notion that like, I'm a hardcore strategist, you know, which Mm -hmm. I am. However, I read this poem by Shel Silverstein and he talks about, it's like this person with blue skin went their whole life covering up their blue skin because everyone else didn't have blue skin. And all they wanted was to find someone else with blue skin so that they could reveal themselves and be like, oh my gosh, you too. I also have blue skin. And what they didn't realize is that there were so many people with blue skin, but everyone was hiding their blue skin, thinking the mm. same thing. And so that, that was, it was my version of just being like, I have blue skin, y'all. I'm also a strategist, but I'm blue as well. So like, you want to party? You want to dance? Great. Know this first. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. know, know that my skin is blue before anything else. Um, and that just became more important to me because I found that I had to do less or little to no actually convincing. And it was the convincing that was draining me. And I was spending a lot of time anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm, no, I love this. I'm um, going to look up the poem. It feels like it's just the, uh, maybe the little sip of medicine I might need to to make the decision. Ooh. So thank you for, for yeah. offering that. And I'm curious for those, just thinking about those who may be listening, who also acknowledge they have blue skin, but maybe they are entrepreneurs, like social, I think in Alchemy of Chaos, you use the archetype, the social culture leader. My sense is, and there are a lot of people listening who are working within organizations, but who I feel, and I sense they feel, have blue skin, 
but are unsure as to how to show up in that. And I would say to recognize that as an absolute gift to those spaces. So I'm curious what you would say to those who, and maybe to those who do come into the program as a social culture leader, how can they come out, obviously leaving a space such as Alchemy of Chaos or any transformational process where your courage is protected, you're celebrated, it's an incredibly intimate and sacred space, going back to a world that can feel to be quite otherwise, how do you support them or what do you offer as kind of tools or guidance in helping them cultivate and integrate their, yeah, the courage that they've built within themselves as they go back to spaces where maybe everyone doesn't have blue skin? Yes. Or doesn't know uh, they have blue skin. Right. They don't. Yeah, exactly. I, I think about this in, in concentric circles, you know, and the concentric circles of experiencing the truth of this and the safety in it. Hmm cultivating uh, first within the self, experiencing the truth and cultivating the safety within self, and then expanding that to that next concentric circle and bringing in loved ones and family members and just like really starting to share those previously hidden or understated or muted aspects of self through this. It's, and it's kind of like that, that then becomes the next arena where you have something to bounce off of um, to kind of build the resiliency (laughs) of potentially being rebuffed or being misunderstood. And then, and then once that courage and trust is cultivated, go to the next ring of concentric circle. And I don't know, like, I think that these rings would look different for everybody, but I do just think it comes down to building capacity. And I know that safety is a very relative thing. So I say that in knowledge that like, safety could be a very, very real circumstance that could be compromised in some areas of the world and some populations, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think, I think that there are, there are lots of nuances that could be looked at there, but in my own experience, I, I used to have such a fear of being seen and heard as a leader because there was a core part of me that didn't see it as safe. It came from an experience when I was really young and because of that, I was staying very quiet and very small, which was great for a while, you know. And then my my soul, my incarnation was like, all right, time to stand up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I had to go through this process of first cultivating that safety and trust in myself and and understanding allyship, you know, and, and kind mm. of like revealing, revealing that blue skin little by little so that it can be from a place of mutual understanding, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it can, you know, and it can be really hard and yes, it is hard and yes, it is worth it still. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I love the idea of the concentric circles reminds me of something in uh, interpersonal therapy, which is helping say the patient or client develop their closeness circle, which is they start with themselves in the middle and then they think about how the people that are closest to them uh, and they develop it in concentric circles, which is such a brilliant activity. And you can also do it in kind of family constellation work using your physical body in space. Like where would you place yourself in relationship to this person? If that chair is your mother, like which circle are they in? But then using that as a tool to help people identify who is their kind of closeness council and yeah, inviting them in as a real um, first step. Like to, yeah. to share a story about, I just went through this experience and I really learned this about myself. Um, and it's really special to me to be able to share that with you. I just really wanted to let yeah. you in and then slowly, slowly bolstering that courage. Yeah. Yeah. And making it true, like making it experientially unequivocally true, because mm. then it's going to feel like less of a agonizing bridge, the bigger you get with this expression. You know, I would say what's true in here is true out there, whether it, we're talking about the internal landscape and then, it, and then it becomes true out there or in something like a coaching container or alchemy of chaos, we, we kept saying, make it true in here so that you can make it true out there. Like, how do you mm-hmm. want to show up? How do you want to show up? Practice, practice what that feels like. And eventually I think it becomes way more confronting to not live in that truth of oneself than it is mm-hmm. to be confronted as a result of revealing oneself. And I think yeah. that that's like really where that threshold comes mm-hmm. in. 
Mm. Like that's that threshold crossing that's going to be agonizing and scary as hell and so fucking worth it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, couldn't Mm -hmm. recommend it high enough. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, speaking from my experience of that, I mean, as a queer man, my experience of coming out and all that that carries around it, I've just really enjoyed reframing as letting in. Like firstly, because it's not, uh, I don't believe in a culture where it should be up to us to come out. Like um, that shouldn't be something that we're kind of obliged to do. Yeah. Yeah. But secondly, it feels much more welcoming as a letting in rather than a coming out. Like I'm actually letting you into my world, the world of possibilities that I live in. And I just really want to let you into that. And that the, for me, the kind of almost anger and frustration when I connect with the grief and the mourning of how much I suppressed myself, that when I actually connect to that well of emotion of grief and mourning for, for the parts of myself that I've othered, that fuels, in a sense, the courage to then hold myself in that outside of maybe these safer spaces. But if I'm not, I suppose, connected to that, that real well of emotion, then, yeah, it feels like I really have to will myself to, to show up in spaces outside of a transformational container. But when I really connect to the grief, then it becomes in service. It's like, actually, I'm connected to the grief in me. There must be so many other people who are experiencing their own version of this grief. And so what is it like to have my expression be a kind of activism, actually? And then it becomes, again, this kind of benefit mindset of how can my expression actually be seen as a service and not to get all, you know, self-centered. And I'm, yeah, I am, I don't know, I am, uh, uh, of course you are the work, but you are in service in a very genuine way, a very authentic rooted, humble version of yourself. And so it it feels important to acknowledge the grief and to to mourn for the parts of yourself that maybe you have pushed aside or othered and have that help fuel the courage in you to bring that to more people. What a set of experiences to inform a way to live. Yeah. Beautifully said Mm. from a place. Yeah, that's beautiful yeah with the fine line of without projecting that anger or frustration but uh, as we were talking about kind of the moetic listening understanding that everybody has their own personal manifestation and version of that same wound and so if in a way of authentically sharing or having the energy or emotion of that kind of animate us in the world in a very humbling way we might help others emancipate themselves from that at the same time. Um, oh, without a doubt. I mean, without a doubt. I think in the conversation about impact and mm. um, how we are able to have the impact on the world that we're meant to have, um, I very strongly believe that our ability to have an impact is directly correlated by how willing we are to live in our truth, the truth mm-hmm. of ourselves and express from that place. I mean, it's always going to carry more weight. It's always going to resonate with the deepest parts of someone's soul when it's coming from just a place of deep acknowledgement of self and awareness of all of those pieces, as you were saying, and a, and a, and a real commitment to, to my, my friend Ruthie says, the truthiest, <laughs> truthiest truth, <laughs> the truthiest part of yourself. And it, it's like, it's like impact it almost, you're going from as someone else in the Alchemy Chaos group, God, everyone in this thing was so freaking brilliant. I just feel so mm-hmm. honored. But one person was like, it's like going from warrior to maestro, you know, going mm-hmm. from like slashing a sword and all of that to like flicking your wrist. And mm-hmm. that's, I think, the impact that can be had when we are functioning from that place. It doesn't take much. Like mm-hmm. our beingness is an impact doesn't, you know, we're not talking about scalable impact or like massive companies and massive wealth. Like, yeah, that's one path. However, the, the purest form of impact, I think, is cultivated from that place of being committed to oneself. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it reminds me of, uh, I wrote a little piece on Instagram, which I think you responded to around immediacy and integrity in this frame, which for me has been a big theme of like restoring wholeness in self and society as a, as a framing inquiry, but the, 
tendency and how easy it is to get caught up in kind of engineering it or working towards it or keeping my calendar busy because I'm on this mission and et cetera, et cetera. And it means that it, I slip out of integrity. Mm. The very people in front of me, the very life that's here, step by step, wholeness actually for me to be in my integrity is to meet that moment with as much grace and listening and sensitivity and wisdom and insight as possible. But in this kind of desire to build the out there, and it's super simple, like it's all just present moment awareness and living, but the piece around integrity and, and living in the immediacy of how life is trying to get our attention in every single moment. And we yes. just turn away and we just turn away. But yeah, it feels that that's really where like this work hits the road, like the tire of our spiritual paths and our leadership paths hits the road in the immediacy of every single conversation. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yum. <laughs> I absolutely agree. And, and leadership. Oh, what did you say? I just said yum. Oh, yum. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yum. Because that is true nourishment, everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yum mm-hmm. is the appropriate word for that. Oh, I, I, I lost my, I lost my thought. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let it go. I was going to ask about, so as we start to, I suppose, wrap or come to a close, which it, this is just chapter 0.0001, but yeah, I'm curious about some of the, maybe some of the practical tools or practices, maybe some of the pieces of homework that you offer people in Alchemy of Chaos that you would be willing and open to share uh, for those who are listening to start to maybe yeah, integrate and actually bring some of this into their experience. Yeah, just recognizing that we've had a beautiful philosophical conversation that's very important. And also, yeah, for those listening who are like, cool, this is inspiring. When I like take out my headphones, what do I do? <laughs> a very good question. I might actually send you some some things to put in the show notes. Sure. Um, there's some, there's some dynamics um, or like pre reading that would play into answering a question, but I have two fun ones that I could offer mm-hmm. <laughs> that feel like they're fluffy and philosophical, but they're incredibly profound. You just have to choose to allow them to be profound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Everything's profound. It's a quality Everything's of attention. Profound. Everything's profound. Like, Oh, that's what, that's what I was going to say actually is that, that the whole practice of, you said life is trying to get our attention and Mm. do we listen or do we turn away? Um, I think that that's another aspect of embodied leadership is the recognition that presence ignites everything and Mm. that our presence to life, we can hear it, we can see it, we can bring our decision-making frameworks into the here and now, not into the potential possible future and not into the what was. Mm-hmm. Not from, them. yeah. So, so paying attention to life as if it actually matters, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> minute by minute is such a key to leadership. So, actually, that'd be the first thing. Like, if you are in a leadership role, and I think everyone is in a leadership role mm-hmm. in some capacity, if you're, and I think that keeping some kind of log of you can call it a synchronicity. You can call it a message from life. You can call it a divine intervention, but they are everywhere. These things happen to us every single day. It's almost like it's the language of truth, at least for me. Uh, I live my life in this never-ending stream of synchronicity, and people are like, how do you do this? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I pay attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I wait for I look for it. I wake up every day, and I move through the world expecting miracles, and they always come. And it can be the smallest thing. Like it don't like there doesn't need to be any discrimination about like what is a worthy synchronicity and what is not. Like it can be the tiniest little clue. Like you think about someone and they text you, or you wake up wanting eggs and your partner like brings you scrambled eggs. You know, mm-hmm. it's like those are silly examples, but you know what I mean. It could be anything small. Because the more attention you pay to this, the more you will experience it in your life and in your leadership. And I think it, it creates a more centered, uh, grounded way to live and lead. So that'd mm-hmm. be the first thing. Keep a synchronicity journal. 
the next one I would say is there is a song called On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter. Al, do you know Max Richter? Nope. Okay. This song, y'all, this song to me, uh, something we talk about in Alchemy of Chaos is after the alchemy, or maybe it's before the alchemy um, session. I ask everyone to listen, to pull up this song, put down all of the things, get some great headphones or an awesome speaker and listen to this song and listen to it as if it will answer the question, what is alchemy for you? And as you listen, let this song speak to you. I believe that this, I mean, I think that lots of music has messages for us, but this one in particular Mm -hmm. has been very moving for me. Listen to this song until it ends and then free write for 15 minutes about what alchemy is and how it's applied to leadership. And that is very abstract, but again, for you to have your own experience with this and allow it to be profound is actually what's going to source and fuel your understanding of this. So nothing prescriptive over here. Mm -hmm. The third thing I would say is I love Carl Jung and he said that the secret to life, the secret to life is to gaze at clouds for at least one hour per day. Mm -hmm. So your next assignment would be to go outside and look at the clouds, be available to be astonished at what you see and perceive and notice. I always say, notice what you notice. Mm-hmm. Again, do some writing, five, 10 minutes of what you notice. Notice what you notice. And then the last one would be, Al, uh, kind of like we were talking about before we hopped on uh, to the recording portion of this, but uh, to go have fun, to go play. Mm. And if you're not used to playing and not used to being in the frequency of play, this is going to probably feel pretty awkward and just like be with it and be with whatever it is. Like if you just like (laughs) are thinking so hard about playing that you actually can't play, notice that too, you know, like that's also a starting point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Think about what that means and says about you and leadership. You can look at each of these in the context of leadership. Al, what did you say that quote was about play before? Uh, I think it's Tim Brown from IDEO, who is a play expert and says, defines play as time spent without purpose. And that Uh for most people, that's just the definition for anxiety. But yeah, play, time spent without purpose. And you know why I really love that is I think you and I have had this conversation today that's kind of like counterculture to what prescriptive leadership, you know, usually is framed as. And Mm. that, I love that, especially right now with everyone's like, find your purpose and your purpose is the only thing that matters and your true North and all of that. Mm -hmm. Like, I love that play is the, is time spent with an absence of purpose. Uh Because I mean, going back to like abandoning outcome, that whole thing, like having a purpose is great, but it kind of has a blinders on mentality of like, Oh, I, I found my purpose. I'm just going to drive towards my purpose. Like what if there's a door left? What if mm-hmm. there's a door, right? What if there's something else? What if there's a new purpose? And if you're always like honed in and clasped to your purpose, like, you know, for dear life, then maybe you're missing something else. So that play might be a way that you find that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like having a, I mean, it's, time with it spent without purpose but there is a it's an it still has intention of course it just doesn't have purpose in the sense of like a desired outcome yes yeah and it i mean for me again it just as i was saying before as well the last couple of weekends have just allowed some play and it's like falling in love all over again with everything that i'm pouring my myself into and remembering why i'm doing it for myself as well which really has it be genuine again Because there's also this mentality of find your purpose and be of service and like do it for the world. And it's so easy to give yourself over and to burn out and to not be regenerative and sustainable in your impact making. So it is important to fall in love. It is important to remember the selfish desire of why you're actually doing what you're doing. Because you love it, because it fuels you, because it regenerates you. And without play, it's so easy to just forget that. So love it. And yeah. that, yeah, play courts the, it courts the music, courts creativity, it courts innovation, new ideas. It's those things that are so hard to force, like to sit down and just plan to be creative. Good luck. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can create the environment, 
but like it's a quality of playful attention that will like court it, welcome it, invite it. Um, so I love it. And we'll put it in the show notes as well as what was the song you mentioned again? It's called On the Nature of Daylight. Mm. It, it's off of the album, uh, The Blue Notebooks by Max Victor. Lovely. All right. We could just keep going and going. Going. I, I've been on a lot of podcasts. This is absolutely my favorite conversation I've ever had. Oh, You're magical. Thank you. It's, um, yeah, it's been a beautiful ride. And I love conversations where it is. I mean, my hope for this podcast is really that it does model what this kind of listening and this generative dialogue can be. And so that it is a back and forth. It's not just me throwing questions. It, it is this kind of meandering conversation. And so, yeah, thanks for being part of, of that dance and, and modeling what listening um, and speaking from the heart really can be. It's always so, so fueling. And I feel like I just had breakfast again. <laughs> Surprise. You're not going to have to eat till 3 p.m. today. <laughs> yeah, I'll push it back a bit. Um, so as we close, I'm wondering, yeah, if there's any parting remarks or stories, questions that you would love to leave everybody with. Parting remarks, stories, or questions. Like you, I feel very satiated. Mm. I feel I feel very full and content, and I'm just going to let it be silence, pregnant silence. Mm. Yum. Yum. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I will put links to your website, Alchemy of Chaos, and any notes that you send across as well in the show notes for those listening. Otherwise, thank you so much for, for sharing, for daring, for doing the work you do for inspiring yeah, regenerative evolutionary leadership in the world. And I look forward to more conversations. Hopefully yes, in the not too distant future. Thank you, mm. Al. Thank you for creating this. Thank you for the thoughtful, every detail. And thank you for showing up the way that you do. It's an honor to know you. Mm. Lovely. What questions are still wearing inside for you? What landed and rung loudly for you? Let's take a moment. Thank you for joining me for another life-affirming and enriching conversation, each one a light, a torch to guide us on our path to being in right relationship with ourselves, those we walk with, and the ecologies we are very much a part of. I trust this has gifted you something to place in your toolkit to support you in your journey and your leadership. Make sure to connect with me and leave any comments on my Facebook or Instagram page at Jeffrey, and check out the links in the show notes. This show is completely funded by listeners just like you. So if you feel generous and wish to be part of nourishing these inquiries that we're exploring together, you can leave a once-off donation or soon subscribe to my Patreon membership. Show notes, resources, and donations are all at www.spacesbetweenpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, we can't rush our way back. Notice connections and tend to the sweet, sweet spaces between. Lots of love. Thank you.